You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listener, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you. Welcome back to Voice of Islam Radio. You listening to another episode of The Breakfast Show. My name is Shahil Munir Ahmed. I'm joined here with my co-host Asim Hashmi. Asim Hashmi, Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing today? Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Alhamdulillah. By the grace of God, I'm good. And how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, Asim, it's been a long time. Last two weeks, I wasn't here. You covered for me as well. Um, it is nice to hear your voice, you know, nice to listen to the radio as well, nice to listen to the topics we basically discuss from another perspective, you know, not not just being the host, but also being sometimes just the listener. And it's very enjoyable. Um, I've seen, you know, here in the voice of some radio, the, the main purpose of course is Islam, that we present Islam in this way that people can understand Islam as well, that Islam is the religion who can fit in that is every society. And I, I, I would say that. Islam is basically a religion who can integrate and has already integrated in a Western society. Because Asim, you and me, we will both agree that we have brought up here. We know that language. We know the people. We went to school and religion never never told us or never stopped us. I mean, you see so many Muslim people now working in different workplaces as well, carrying on their job while also following their faith as well. So this is, you know, this is very important to understand because, you know, as I said, the last two weeks I was the one who was listening to the shows and I could realize, I could learn that from the, this perspective, being a listener, that Islam is basically a religion who has already been integrated for so many years and uh, it is not Islam who, who is trying to put a bad picture on that religion it's not us it is basically the media who is manipulating the minds of a lot of people and our aim is of course to bring them back to show them that we are part of this society as you are as well and that we are also here to help to glow to help that uh, to help the society to prosper and in listeners today we will do the same as well awesome for that, we have normally, awesome, we prepare two topics, but this time there's a change, isn't it? Absolutely. So we have actually three segments for today. Uh, the first segment is protecting the vulnerable cries for humanity amidst war. Uh, we would have a pre-recording with this, and also we would have um, Imam Zafar Mahmood who will be joining us for this topic. And then the second segment is a resolution to wellness diving into dry January where we have three um, guests with us uh, Mr. Andrew Missel uh, Associate Professor in Hamilton and also Miss Alice Wiseman and then the third segment is the importance of nurturing child genius where we would be joined by two guests um, Mrs. Julie Taplin and Mr. Jason Bucklery and you listen as I said Three topics today for you. The only thing I want from you is call in. You can call in many times. You can show your thought without the number is 0208-687-7878. Or you can go on our socials at Voice of Islam UK. Meanwhile, before we go to our first segment, Asim, we were talking, discussing this already. 
justice for those post office workers? Absolutely, yeah. So we do have uh, news as people have heard about the post office scandal. And just early on, hundreds could have convictions overturned this year. So hundreds were wrongly convicted in the post office scandal could have their names cleared this year after emergency laws were announced to swiftly exonerate and compensate victims. Post Office Minister Kevin Hollenreich said there had been victims of a brutal and arbitrary exercise of power. He added that one billion had been budgeted for compensation payments. So there were more than 900 convictions linked to this scandal over 16 years, with only 93 so far being overturned. Between 1999 and 2015, the Post Office prosecuted hundreds of sub-postmasters and mistresses after a faulty computer system called Horizon made it look like money was missing. So, ahead of public inquiry into the affair resuming on Thursday, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told the House of Commons on Wednesday that those previously convicted in England and Wales would be cleared of wrongdoing and compensated under the new law. So it says that they can be um, eligible for compensation, payment of £600,000 already available to people who had their names cleared by the courts. Unbelievable that these things still happen. And it's so sad. I mean, uh, these people, innocent people, have been convicted for something they hadn't, Absolutely. Didn't I mean, do, haven't done it. People going to the jail and convicted and people going bankrupt because of this as well. So it, it is very sad. And dear listeners, um, if you haven't yet read the news or the newspaper yet, um, as Asma has already mentioned, uh, the post office scandal dominates Thursday's paper. But um, as you have know that uh, the news that legislation will be introduced to overturn the conviction of hundreds of victims on the, the post office scandal, um, it is something, uh, as I said, it is dominating uh, t- today's papers mainly. But we have also news, uh, some other news to share as well. That, um, for example, the Financial Times calls the move to exonerate to compensate those affected unprecedented, and does the guard, un- as does the Guardian, which says senior lawyers view the government's action as constitutionally extraordinary. The Times says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's blanket fix for the debacle is giving leading lawyers the jitters. The Daily Mail the reports that a row is looming over the offer of £75,000 in compensation to victims who were never convicted but were told to pay back money that was never missing. One of them, Joe Hamilton, says the deal shows the Prime Minister is completely out of touch. And the Daily Mirror quotes campaigner Alan Bates as saying the payout would not be enough and will not make up for paymaster suffering. And the Sun's uh, headline says first class result justice says the daily express while the front page of the Times speaks of deliverance for postmasters and daily listeners the Tilly telegraph leads on reports that post office investigators were given cash bonuses to secure prosecutions it also quotes Mr. Bates who tells the paper that the practice highlights what he calls the horrendous culture within the organization the Port Office tells the Telegraph that the bonus scheme is rightly being investigated by the public inquiry into the scandal. 
Pressure grows to punish post-office scandal firm is the headline in the eye. The paper says some MPs are calling for pause in the awarding of government contracts to Fujitsu. The paper quotes an unnamed senior minister saying they are surprised that the post office hasn't sued Fujitsu already. And Daily Mail asks, did Fujitsu expert, experts know of glitches and then look away as victims were jailed? The Express is among the papers to cover the involvement of a British warship in repelling attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen. It says Britain could be on the brink of blasting bases in Yemen. Asked if Britain would launch strikes on the country, Defence Secretary Grant Shape is quoted as saying, Watch this space. Delikov says that around 200 Houthi um, rebels have been trained at an elite Iranian naval academy by the country's revolutionary guard. And the Financial Times, the listener reports that the head of the independent body which advised the government on climate change has quit after six years. It describes Chris Starks as a consistent critic of the government and says his departure will leave the Climate Change Committee without a chief executive or permanent chair. Starmer, UK does need, uh, does need nanny state, declares the Sun. It reports that Labour leader Sarah Starmer wants to introduce supervised toothbrushing in school for three or f- to five years old as part of a wider child health action plan. It quotes Sirke as saying his party wants to fight the notion that the movement you do not anything on child health people say you are going to have in any state. About, you know, um, especially you know what Sirke Stamas is saying about toothbrushing the Holy Prophet peace upon him he used to do it five times a day and you know, it is proven that um, it is very healthy for your body as well. For example, when if you don't brush your teeth in the night, in the night before you go to sleep, mm-hmm. you it increases uh, the attack of heart attacks. Or the reason is that because if you don't brush your teeth, bacteria will come into your body inside. Mm-hmm. It will go into your yeah. body and it will harm your organs as well. And so, it can work overnight, of course. So it can, yeah. It's, exactly, it's really exactly. Yeah. And I think it's a good initiative that they have started, especially at this young age, three to five, which is crucial mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. It's important. As soon as you see the first teeth, you start brushing them. <laughs> Teach them how to do it. Yeah. Uh, but it's also important, you know, um, because... Uh, Sometimes, I mean, per- the person might be ashamed by himself if he knows that he has a smelly mouth and if he's talking to someone. I was saying, you know, the most important thing is p- have a uh, chimigong prepared, you know, in your pocket, just in case. Yes. Um, because y- you never know. It's very important uh, to um, if you speak to someone else as well. And then, uh, you know that um, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and it's, it's also an Islamic teaching that... Um, your mouth should be watched, washed, it should be clean, it shouldn't be smelly, you shouldn't eat mm-hmm. from, uh, something like garlic or on, onion, onions while coming to the mosque, right? It says that Absolutely, d- yeah. uh, because uh, this causes trouble and problem for those sit standing or ne- uh, sitting next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have a clean uh, mouth as well, brush your teeth before coming to the mosque as well. Uh, and not only into the mosque, everywhere where you go, it's important that uh, the person in front of you should be able to speak to you back without uh, holding his nose or covering his nose or whatever. Um, of course, uh, it's all, it also, uh, what I just read, is about uh, the fight against the Houthis in Yemen. You know, Asim, um, this f- war, this 
crisis we have in the Middle East is getting bigger and bigger, and now some other nations are um, joining as well as the Britons. Uh, Great Britain is joining the war against Houthi as well. And, and this is something, you know, um, His Holiness, uh, may Allah be his helper, Hazrat Mizam the fifth caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, may Allah be his helper, has many, many times um, said as well that the blockade will be builded, you know, um, and uh, this could be taken to a major war. And Azur has highlighted this in his Friday sermon as well that it is looking like it's going to a major war. And um, it is so sad that, I mean, you know, this is what I'm saying all the time, and today we will discuss this as well. Um, that how is it possible that we're living in an advanced age and still we have this kind of thing, what we call as war? And uh, um, Asim, if you just, if you start counting, like, from the beginning of um, since let let's say since the beginning of humanity, right? Or since the beginning, um, yeah, since the beginning uh, of the humanity. If we start from there till yet, how do you, what do you think? How many wars have this world have been seen? Has this world has seen? Quite a lot, yeah. Many, many, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, uh, you can't count them. And how? What do you think? How many lives have been taken away? It's um, can't count them. It is so. I mean, this is one thing yeah. that you know these things happen in the past, and they're still happening yet as well. Hmm. You learn from the past. Absolutely. So you learn from the past, so you can't. You don't have to do. It. But this is so sad. Like everywhere, like not even in the uh, in the Middle East, we see crisis everywhere. It's all their personal agendas, politics. They want to make some. Some want to make money. Some want their own country to you know flourish, and then they don't mind harming other countries. So, as His Holiness has said, we got to look at a wider angle. We got to look out for the world, not just for our own benefit, and save this world, not just your own country. You know, it is important that people put away. You, you said it very beautifully. I mean, you're right that it's their own agenda, and to get rid of these things, you need to go against your own ego. And uh, this is the thing that, um, unfortunately. Uh, we will see this crisis as it looks like. But, you know, when His Holiness, may Allah be his helper, when he speaks about these things as well, he he also gives a solution for everything, right? He says that um, one solution could be what Islam is teaching us, that to recognize God. You know, if you recognize God, if we have that connection to God, if we have that love for God as well, then of course you will have the love, same love for his creation as well. And this is why every MD and Muslim is doing as well, that he's praying for every human being in this world. Regardless from where he is, regardless from what religion he is, that Allah saves him and that Allah saves this world as well and that Allah reunites all the Muslims as well. And all these crises, all these wars come to an end. And this is the most important thing. This is what we're looking for. World peace is basically the key word which we are looking for. And... Islam has given many, many solutions for that as well. One solution I always say to people is that God himself has presented or introduced himself as Salam, was one of his attributes, which means the source of peace. And uh, every Muslim who is following Allah, he is following his attributes as well and is trying to be the source of peace as well. Nice point. I like it. Uh, it's not my point. Mm. You know, this, this point, and again, this point was introduced 
by His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Mansur Ahmed, may Allah be salvah, when he was in Canada, when he was giving a speech to students, right? He was explaining them to them. So you like this point, and dear listeners, I'm sure you like this point as well. So remember, this point is not for me. It is taken. This point was presented by His Holiness, but this point, which he presented, was basically is a part of the teachings of Islam. For Islam could be one solution as well. I'm sure Islam is a solution. I'm sure religion can play a big role. Into Absolutely, that as, well. yeah. as Sahil has mentioned, His Holiness has been warning the world for the past 15 to 20 years about the. Um, world war which is happening and if you want to listen you can see all his peace conferences for the last 15-20 years and please do watch where he's been warning the world about the world war and we're still not taking people are still not listening and um, we do hope that people do listen and stop this um, or their own agendas basically exactly um, exactly, this is what we want in the end. And of course, um, you can, as uh, Asma said, you can listen to these or you can read them as well. Uh, it's a book called a Pathway to Peace, where all his speeches, all his addresses to the world leaders has been uh, gathered in one book. Awesome. Absolutely. So we you. do have some other news in detail. One is that government unveils biggest nuclear expansion in 70 years. That is the big news. The government hopes to boost the nuclear power industry with the biggest expansion of the sector in 70 years. A new large-scale nuclear plant would be would quadruple supplies by 2050, which the government claims would lower bills and improve energy security. It also said its £300 million nuclear fuel program would reduce reliance on overseas supply. But the Associate of Renewable Energy and Clean Technology said all clean energy needed fast tracking. So nuclear power currently provides around 15% of the UK's electricity, but many of the country's ageing reactors are due to be decommissioned over the next decade. The government's uh, civil nuclear roadmap is intended to bolster the UK's energy independence by exploring a new site for another nuclear power station of the size and scale of the 30 billion pound plants under construction at Hinkley Point in Somerset and committed to Sayswell in Suffolk. Um, but the progress is could be slow. Uh, from planning to power on can take nearly 20 years. Consultations from for Sizewell uh, took 10 years alone and building work there is yet to start because of ongoing protests. The government will hope to address such problems by streamlining the development of new power stations by introducing smarter regulation. It anticipates it will be able to deliver new nuclear power plants faster. So 14 years and not one new site opened despite inheriting 10 approved sites from the last Labour government. Labour support expanding the UK's nuclear power fleet, which must form a critical part of our future energy mix, Ms. Dabbott says. So this is good news that um, we will see um, bigger improvements, but this, of course, could take uh, quite a few years and and supplies could quadruple by 2050. But, of course, everything... Um, does take time and uh, progress, but slow progress is still um, good. We always say progress is important in our lives. 
Prayer is the most important thing. Indeed, it is. Uh, this is what uh, Islam says as well that you should you you tomorrow should be better than the day before, the next and uh, and Hazu, you know His Holiness may Allah be happy again. He has given guidance to that as well how we can prosper, how we can um, progress. He said that but before you go to sleep, just go through the uh, activities you have done throughout the day, and those like just write them down. Reflect on them. Of course, if they ever have some mistakes, try to remove them. And uh, this is like, you know, I always say that this is the beauty of Islam, that you can learn. And Islam is not there to let you down, but Islam is there to help you to increase in morality, increase in good quality, etc. Awesome. Um, football. Um, as I heard, 2024 is the year of football. We have many, many tournaments coming up in this year. And one is starting soon. Um, in uh, Africa, I believe. Absolutely, they have the cup going on, and also there's a cup in Asia as well. So, our Premier League players have, um, our favorite Premier League players have left. So, we have Son going, we have Salah going, and other players as well. So, these um, clubs will struggle a bit, and we do hope that uh, Chelsea can climb up the stairs then whilst these clubs are struggling <laughs> <laughs> even if they start climbing up I don't think that, I don't think it, I mean, it would be enough for them uh, well we can pray so we had a EFL Cup for the last two weeks mm. it is the semi-finals first we had um, Middlesbrough versus Chelsea Middlesbrough actually won 1-0 and Actually, won one day. Yeah, um, I mean, we were experimenting with our team. You know, we didn't really have. All right. Yeah, a, a it didn't go well. Team. Yeah, it didn't go well. There's a second leg as well, so I that's know. that's okay. And then yesterday, uh, Liverpool was uh, playing Fulham, and they were actually losing one nil. But um, Jones scored in 68 minutes, and Gapkos came on from the sub and scored in 75, 71 minutes. So, so actually won two. They actually won. Actually, won, yeah. actually won. Yeah, it's good. It, it is good. I mean, um, the Liverpool's doing very well this season. They are. They're first yeah. in the league. Um, they are progressing in every tournament they're playing right now. Uh, it is it's going, it's an interesting season, but you know, the thing is that um, you shouldn't be relaxed on, on January. Exactly. This is what more people think that you're first mm-hmm. because half of the season is done and you're still first and mm-hmm. you can maybe become first in the end of the season as well, but it is not. Uh, no trophy is given in January. This is every, yeah. Everyone knows <laughs> that. And um, They actually climbed very nicely. Arsenal was one number, spot number one for quite a long time, but then they started dropping down and Liverpool came up. Aston Villa is second. Yeah, a hat up to um, what's his name again? Uh, the coach of Aston. Unai Emery. Unai Emery. Yeah, man, he's a great coach. He's a great coach indeed. He won many titles with uh, Sevilla. He won the Europe many, many times with them. He flopped in Arsenal, for, so, which wasn't a surprise though. Um, but now he's doing very well in Aston Villa. I mean, he uh, is, he second. Is. It's huge. It's a, it's a huge surprise. And you never know. Maybe they are the next uh, Leicester City. Oh, good point, good point. But it, it is difficult to stay. It is very difficult to maintain the, yeah, that spot, exactly. especially in the Premier League, because you have still many, many games coming on as mm-hmm. well. And uh, Manchester City is third, and uh, they have some good news that Kevin De Bruyne is back. So Haaland must be flattered that he has some... Is Haaland back, though? He's injured. Oh, Haaland is injured, though. 
And uh, so they have the injury crisis. Yes. Also, Kyle Walker's wife left him because he cheated on cheated on her. There's something uh, we should know that Man City's team is struggling a lot. Yeah, their team is struggling. Yeah, but I mean, of course, um, it's his own mistake, though, of uh, Kyle Walker. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not backing up the listeners, uh, but yeah, Haaland is injured. Um, Kevin De Bruyne is injured, was injured as well, and they struggled as a bit as well. They dropped many, many points as well. But they still have a game in hand and on 40 points, so they could climb to 43 if they win the next game. Game and just two points behind the top Liverpool spot. When they win that one yeah. remaining game, yeah. okay, let's see if they win that game, uh, the listeners. And um, we will go for a short break, and then we will start with our first segment. So do me a favor, stay in tune with the voices on radio, and then, and don't go anywhere. The purpose of the voice of Islam is to inform people of the true teachings of Islam and to make it abundantly clear that Islam's teachings perfectly conform and relate to the needs of every era and every person. The Voice of Islam brings you a whole range of exciting programs each week, 24 hours a day. Tune into our current affairs programs such as Pathway to Peace and Faith in Focus. Welcome to another episode of Pathway to Peace. Welcome to Faith in Focus, an hour of discussion, debate and dialogue. Find out about faith in the current age with Science Hour and Around the Table. Welcome back to the Science Show here on The Voice of Islam. Welcome to another edition of Around the Table. Join us on Voice of Islam throughout the week. for a wide range of programs for you to enjoy walillahi alasmaul husna fad'uhu biha Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them 
among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, disseminated this light the most. For it was he who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Writings of the Promised Messiah Then arise and repent and win the pleasure of God through good works. Remember that the punishment of wrong beliefs is after death. Being a Hindu or a Christian or a Muslim will be determined on the Day of Judgment. But a person who goes beyond the limit in wrongdoing, transgression, disobedience and vice is punished in this life. Such a one cannot escape God's chastisement. So hasten to win God's pleasure and before the dreadful day arrives, namely the day of intensity, of the plague of which the prophets have warned, make your peace with God. He is very benevolent to the one moment of the repentance that melts the heart. He can forgive the sins spread over 70 years. Do not say the repentance is not accepted. Remember that you cannot be saved by your deeds. It is grace that saves and not deeds. Benevolent and merciful Lord, bestow thy grace upon all of us. We are thy servants and have fallen down upon thy threshold. Amen. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Allah, 
listening to the voice of islam radio in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful dear listeners welcome back to breakfast show on the voice of islam radio my name is shaim ahmed and i'm joined here with asim hashmi and dear listeners as promised before we went for the short break we will start with the first segment asim protecting the vulnerable cries for humanity amidst war what is the gist of the story So Sal, the gist is that with more than 20,000 people killed, mostly women and children, and 44,000 uh, injured, death and despair continue to seize the land of Gaza. Indiscriminate bombing has left behind shattered lives and conditions impossible to live in. Severely wounded and hungry, with absent medical aid, the children of Gaza fear being just another number. Dear listeners, it has been almost three months now since this war has started. and I mean, it's overall, uh, over three over months, three yeah, months yeah. now, and it is so sad. So many people have lost their life as well. This crisis is long, it's a long crisis, which is going on for a long, long years. Not only just, it didn't start only three months ago, it started almost 80 years ago. And uh, it's something, you know, um, we can't just... We can't just be silent about that. We need to talk about that. We need to make sure that people realize that this crisis can come bigger and everyone get can get involved into that. Um, but before, I mean, there are ways, you know, that we can still uphold our moral qualities during war as well. But bef- and, of course, these qualities were introduced by the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be with him but before we go to these things before we come from the Islamic angle and we say how Islam basically told us what to do and how to uh, what the guidelines was during a war before we come to that we go to a sh- uh, pre-recording with uh, Dr. Jessica Winninger um, and after that we will be back and then we will discuss from the Islamic point how we can maintain moral qualities during war as well Dear listeners, I'm delighted to have with me Dr. Jessica Winninger, who is a professor of anthropology at Northwestern University, where she also holds the Hamad bin Khalifa al-Sani chair in Middle East Studies. Dear listeners, she is the author of numerous books and articles on Middle East culture and politics. Dr. Jessica, welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thanks for having me. Um, I just wanted to know about the opinion of the current situation in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, as a professor of anthropology uh, and as a human being, frankly, it's it's very distressing to see such significant um, loss of civilian life. Um, as of today, it's 22,000 Palestinian civilians have been killed um, by Israel in this military operation um, with likely about eight to 10,000 Uh, still unaccounted for under the rubble. So by any, um, you know, measure of the situation, according to the majority of genocide scholars, this, um, both this number and the rhetoric surrounding it, the intent surrounding it, qualifies it as an act of genocide. But as an anthropologist, I'm also very, very concerned about the destruction of social fabric. Um, mm. You know, when, when the you know, when the Israeli military destroys homes and businesses and infrastructure and um, whole families are are killed, um, you know, several families who off the social registry 
that really does tremendous long-term damage to society. Um, and so it's really concerning how, you know, how Palestinian society in Gaza can be rebuilt once hopefully the cessation of these hostilities happens. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult. You're seeing people, for example, um, you know, the breakdown of social norms. When aid comes in, people kind of rushing the trucks because they're so yeah. desperate. Um, so this really shows a kind of very concerning breakdown of, of society and social norms that it will be really, really difficult to come back from. And then the last point on this, as an anthropologist, um, I'm also very concerned about the mental health and the long-term traumatic effects of, uh, of this war on Palestinians, particularly Palestinian children who have lost, you know, so many members of their generation, but also of their families. So we're going to see long-term intergenerational trauma that, of course, builds on the trauma experienced um, from the decades of dispossession of Palestinians and their land since 1948. Well, um, I just want to know that because you're just talking about long-term um, problems we will see maybe after the war because uh, the thing which have been caused during the war, but do you think it is still possible to live then there and in the place of Gaza with all these things you have just mentioned? Is it still possible to have a healthy society over there? Well, it would be possible to have a healthy society if there were international um, will, and by international, I mean pretty much uh, the U.S., European governments, and Israel to allow there to be a flourishing of a healthy society. Mm. You know, before this war, there there really wasn't even a healthy society because of the blockade on Gaza. So, you know, basic uh, foodstuffs and medicines and travel and all of those things being blocked um, really was putting constraints on Palestinian society that it, it really hadn't been a healthy, healthy, you know, society. So I think, you know, it really depends on whether there is will to um, actually allow Palestinian sovereignty, a Palestinian state um, after, after this uh, war. Um, yeah. That's really, it's, it's not, the Palestinian people certainly have the capability to build a healthy society, but mm. when they're doing so within these structures of oppression, it can be very, very difficult. And you were like just you just mentioned uh, international uh, frameworks as well. Uh, you have mentioned the U.S. and now we have seen that we have heard that the U.S. government has also said that it should come to an end. Um, and even uh, the president of France has called for a ceasefire. Do you think these words are just mere words, or do you really think that they uh, prioritize the protection of vulnerable populations? Um. No, I mean, I think they're a Band-Aid. I mean, obviously, a ceasefire would be great to stop the loss of life, but that's the bare minimum. I think that they're, they're I mean, they're important words, but they're not the only words that need to be spoken. What we need is a long-term political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian um, situation, which involves this, the end of Israeli occupation of Palestine and the full support of Palestinian sovereignty. Um, this does not necessarily mean the destruction of the state of Israel, as the Israeli propaganda mm -hmm. machine likes to tell us. Um, but yeah, I mean, a ceasefire is just the beginning. If there is not an end to occupation, this, th these wars will keep repeating themselves. And frankly, right now, uh, Israel is, you know, I've heard some people say it's creating the enemy that will defeat them in the end, because the amount of ire that is being produced against Israel around the world and in Palestine for its, you know, illegal actions right now um, is significant. And so I would not be surprised if more people turn to violent resistance.
And uh, um, we, uh, we, we've seen that, for example, um, we have seen videos of soldiers um, behaving like in a very unmoral way. And sometimes you see that how is it possible that a human can act in that very unmoral way. Do you think that education should be also like should be a part of the uh, military training? I mean, that would be good. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of anti-Palestinian racism and Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hate in um, in the world and in Israeli yeah. society. So education is, is also very important. But I think in the end, military solutions have, have not shown themselves to be actual solutions. So we can say we want to educate the military in, in terms of ethics and morality, but look what has happened like uh this war is greatly perceived by many people including south africa now who's just put up you know a case before the international court of justice it's seen as an illegal war or a moral war but that doesn't actually have any um ramifications so education could help but in the end we need an end to the idea that the military military action is the only solution uh, just one thing um as you said that a lot of people are now asking for the end of the war as well. The UN, um, how, what role do you see by the UN? Because uh, sometimes it seems like the UN is very weak on ending the war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, international mechanisms generally are. International humanitarian law exists, but it's, it's very difficult to, um, you know, make sure that warring parties adhere to it. As we see in this situation, the UN is very weak because of the role of the U.S., on the Security Council. So we're in a time where we're really seeing the weakness of international regulatory systems, laws, and institutions in um, controlling um, conflict or mediating conflict around the world. And, you know, part of that has to do with uh, the role of, you know, the I would say the outside role of the U.S. in, in global politics, in sort of ignoring the law when it It, uh, it doesn't seem to fit what is, you know, U U.S. foreign policy and then claiming the law when it does fit U.S. foreign policy. So it is more like an interest conflict for them then? Yes, for sure. And there's also just what we're seeing in the United States right now is a real schism between the American people on this issue and the U.S. government. We're even seeing schisms within the government where whole groups of um You know, legislative aides, for example, are, are trying to uh, push for a ceasefire within the government. But, you know, U.S. Uh, military interests and moneyed interests are, yeah. are really at odds with the general sentiment of the, the American people. I have, I have never seen such large demonstrations uh, in support of uh, Palestinians in the U.S. in, you know, three decades. Well, do you think this demonstration will put pressure on the government in the end? Yes, I think it is already putting pressure on the government. Um, not only are the demonstrations very large in number, but they're disrupting business as usual. They are also, uh, many municipalities are passing um, ceasefire resolutions, which have an upwards effect in terms of affecting state and federal government. So I think we're, the, the, and now we're running, we're going into an election cycle, presidential election cycle. And so I think that in the United States in the fall, and so I think that, you know, citizen discontent over, this and the, and the louder voices from the street, particularly from Jewish, uh, progressive Jewish organizations, 
is finally starting to have some impact in the federal level. That's good to hear as well. In the end, we just can hope for eternal peace, world peace. This is what everyone wants. Dr. Jessica, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thought as well. I really enjoyed listening to you as well. And hopefully one day we can have you again in the breakfast show. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Voice of Islam Radio. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, dear listeners, welcome back to Breakfast Show on the Voice of Islam Radio. You just listened to one pre recording with Dr. Jessica. And Asim, you knew before that, we were talking about um, treatment with other people during the war. You know, the war, during the war, you show your worst side or you see the worst side of humanity. You know, innocent people have been killed. Especially if we take, uh, talk about the war in Gaza, hospitals has been destroyed, university has been destroyed, refugee camps has been attacked, and now you you know you want to think that how it is possible to maintain peace in the war, how many to maintain good qualities during the war as well. And I know for a fact, dear listeners, that um, the the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, he maintained these things as well. He gave guidance how to preserve the life of innocent people during war as well. And uh, dear listeners, one thing is also very important that um, we need to remember that the Holy Prophet of course went to war as well, but not for himself, but to defend his loved one, his city, Jews, Christian living with him as well. And of course to defend the uh, places of worship of other people as well but there are so many things we can discuss this awesome and uh, the good thing is about voice of Islam radio is that we have also invited guests who can share their thought with us as well and right now the listeners we have one guest with us his name is Zafar Mahmood who is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and the listeners he has been working with the review of religions magazine since 2016 the listeners the review of religion magazine is one of the longest running comparative religious magazine in print since 1902 and is devoted to promoting intellectual and lively debate that is based on respect for all prophets and religious. And the listeners, Zafir 
is currently serving as the associate editor of this magazine. Zafar, good morning. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you. And welcome to Breakfast Show. Wa alaikum assalam warahmatullahi for having me. Zafar, um, you know, um, we, we are talking about the crisis which is going on in Gaza. And, you know, we were just mentioning that um, during a war, we see the bad side of humanity, always. Yet we have, yet uh, His Holiness has mentioned in a sermon as well about the guidance which were given by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, for our listeners, <clears throat> are, uh, how is it possible to have guidance during war? Because the only thing I know about war is to kill innocent people. This is what war is for me. This is the sad thing about war. But what guidance has the Holy Prophet given to his companions? Um, yes, um, you're right in the fact that unfortunately uh, one uh, byproduct of war uh, is that innocent people do get caught up in uh, the conflict and you, we can see that especially in the war in Gaza um, with more than 22,000 civilians have been killed um, and it's a real uh, turning point in, in in history in fact because it's, it's this war is unique in the perspective that the, the entire world through social media is watching and uh, not only watching some of the the western powers are aiding and abetting and allowing it to go on um, despite all the the international laws that are in place to try and stop these kind of conflicts um, unfortunately it's uh, it's been on more than three months now and we're and there's no end in sight but um, unfortunately uh, war is a part of of human history it is and has been and it probably will be in the future but the the principle is that the what the holy prophet of islam laid down is that to try and avoid war at all costs and if we look at his life he never instigated a war he uh, fought defensive wars the very first war that he an all-out war that was fought was the battle of Badr, and that was because of 13 years of persecution suffered in, in Mecca. Um, despite suffering that persecution and having his companions killed, tortured, boycotted, having his water, uh, food, all of that shut off, he had to migrate to Medina. And despite the migration, the, the disbelievers of Mecca uh, brought an army to try and end this uh, small band of Muslims once and for all. So an Islamic principle of war, uh, to sum up um, very easily, is mentioned in one hadith of Sunan Abu Dawud, which is the one of the six traditional books of hadith. Um, the Holy Prophet clearly says that, O you Muslims, go forth in the name of Allah and perform jihad with the intention of protecting religion. The, the hadith goes on, but I just wanted to stop at this just this point, which is an important aspect of, and it, it quells a lot of uh, misconceptions as well, that jihad is performed for the sake of religion. That is what uh, the Islamic concept of war is, that if one is pushed to fight, one has to fight. Otherwise, one cannot, as a Muslim, cannot pick up arms and start, uh, you know, um, waging wars for the sake of it or for the sake of land or for the sake of resources. So the Hadith continues where the Holy Prophet clearly outlines 
what is to be done in a war and what is not to be done. So he says, beware, do not embezzle the wealth of the spoils, do not deceive people. Remember, this is in the context of war. Do not deceive people. Even in war, mm-hmm. you cannot deceive the, the, the other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, do not mutilate the dead. Do not kill women. Do not kill children. No religious recluses. Do not kill the elderly. Create peace in the land and treat people with benevolence. For surely Allah loves the benevolent. That's the entire hadith. So it, it's actually um, an entire manual um, of how to conduct yourself in, in warfare, where usually people don't conduct themselves in this manner. They, you know, you've, you've heard the, the saying, all is fair in love and war. Hmm. And that is what happens, unfortunately, because people um, don't see the... Um, they, they, they don't want to act in any way other than with violence. So despite all that, the Holy Prophet has given us clear instructions of what to do. I mean, this is very clear. You said already that in this day and age, we see war only where people are uh, doing this for their own benefit. But the Holy Prophet has given this clear guidance, and we see that he tried to uphold the moral qualities as well. How is this possible? In, if you look in this day and age, it, it, I mean, in this day and age, we have uh, international law, right? We mm-hmm. have the United Nations, we have the Geneva Convention, and all of the big major powers are signatories to that convention. But the sad thing is, the reality is, that no one seems to be following any of that. Um, if we look at, uh, just look at, so post-World War II, I won't even mention the, the, the atrocities that were committed in World War II, hmm. like the bombing of Dresden or the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hmm. Um, if just look at post-World War II, for example, in the Vietnam War, Almost two million civilians were killed. Mo- moving closer to our sort of time, uh, the, the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq killed almost 300,000 civilians. Mm. So w- w- the reason why I'm mentioning all this is that there has to be some sort of boundaries. Mm. But the Islamic perspective I've mentioned to you, that, that it's clear that you can't kill women, you can't kill children, you can't kill religious figures, you can't destroy religious buildings. That's, that's actually categorically so mentioned. So there is the no way of collateral damage in Islam? There is no concept of collateral, mm. collateral damage in Islam. Just because someone's taking refuge in a place of worship does not mean you can bomb mm. that. Mm. That's clear, because that's the whole point of the, mm. the reason why permission was given to fight to the Muslims was to uphold and safeguard the sanctity of religion and to help uphold and safeguard the sanctity of, hum, of humankind. And, and especially mentioned in that verse in um, Surah Al-Hajj, about fighting is the protection of places of worship. But you can see in, in the current crisis in Gaza, mosques and churches have been bombed in Gaza. One of the oldest churches um, in the world was actually bombed as well and destroyed. So Zafir, what I've just understand is Islam is basically giving the guidance how to, like he has given very good guidance how to conduct a war in this way that no one is hurt, no innocent people is hurt, and no churches or any religious building is destroyed. So Islam is basically trying that even during war, we should uh, obtain our moral qualities as well, and that we should try to save the life of innocent people. This is what I understood, and this is, I think this is what um, the message was also from you, and uh, this is the message given by the Holy Prophet as well. Uh, Zafil, I'm very grateful. Uh, unfortunately, we're running uh, out of time. 
So, inshallah, hopefully one day we can have you again on the Voice of Islam Radio. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful dear listeners, welcome back to Voice of Islam Radio. We just finished the first segment, uh, and uh, it was clearly very well explained by Zafar as well. Uh, that what guidance the Holy Prophet peace be upon him gave basically during the war and we could see that there's no vision of collateral damage and he said very beautifully even if someone is hiding in a place of, in a place of worship then there's still <coughs> no way that Islam allows you to destroy that place of worship as well and also killing that innocent person so Islam is a religion who has said very beautifully that you can't kill innocent people you can't destroy any place of worship or any very important building in this uh, environment as well. So Islam is basically telling us that we should refrain from these things. And during war, we should also maintain our good quality, our good character as well, which is nowadays which we don't see in this day, uh, in these day and age. In day and age, uh, we see that people are going for their own interest to, uh, and are killing people basically for their own agenda, which is very sad. So Islam is religion, dear listeners, I say again, Islam is religion which has said many, many times as well, there is no vision, version of critical damage. But coming now to our second segment, which is a resolution to wellness, diving into dry January. Awesome, dry January sounds very okay, uh, clear to me, but Islam is religion who says you should stay dry to, to your whole life, like abstain from alcohol. This is what I'm saying. Uh, but still, for this, uh, can you go to the gist of the story? Absolutely. So alcohol has become a widespread addition to not only work events and celebration, but people's everyday lives. The past decade has seen drinking culture work. Uh, it's very into numerous lives seeking place and seeking uh, uh, solace from stress and frustration. However, there's increasing evidence of alcohol being the cause of numerous preventable diseases, accidents and relationship um, problems. As we step into the new year with determination and promises of improvement, why not resolve to a healthier lifestyle too? Indeed. I mean, you have heard the phrase driving under influence, uh, having an accident yep. because of DUI, which means driving under influence, and why having these things. I mean, you know, you just read about the celebrities that they have been... Um, 
convicted because of these crimes it's a crime so why not staying away from that um and to discuss this we will have no uh, not uh, our next guest with us whose name his name is andrew uh, mizzle dear listeners and this is um andrew is a director for Wales at Alco- for Wales at Alcohol Change UK and has led the development of the charity's work in Wales since 2009. Now his main areas of interest include dry January, access to support for the most vulnerable drinkers, alcohol and mental health and the growth of the f- alcohol free drinks market. Uh, Andrew, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you and welcome to the breakfast show. Thank you. Salam. Muslim. Andrew, um, I just want to know that um, it's a good initiative to have a dry January. Um, but, I mean, uh, what I've always heard is that uh, people are always saying that, you know, you should reduce the amount of alcohol. You came coming up with a new initiative which says that you should stay away from alcohol in the beginning of the, this year. What is the reason? Why do you came with this initiative to motivate people to stay away from alcohol for a whole month? I think the idea is, obviously, people feel a benefit. People who do drink alcohol, they feel a benefit from not drinking it for a month. You know, people say they feel better, they sleep better, they might lose some weight, you know, they probably save some money. Um, But the aim really is um, to help people moderate throughout the year. And what we found from the thousands of people who've done Dry January with us over the years is that there's some people, maybe not the majority, who they take the month off and then they never want to drink again, and that, that you know that works for them. But what most people say is that they, by spending a month without drinking alcohol, they realize they don't need it so much, and they uh, they moderate their drinking. They drink less. And um, when we've gone back to people six months later, they say they're still drinking less. And I think, I mean, there are there are lots of people in the country. Obviously, probably a lot of your listeners. Um, will be you know following the the traditions of islam and abstaining from alcohol because the message in the quran is very very clear Mm -hmm. about that uh but for people who do drink alcohol uh it's obviously best to to moderate it so that it's not having uh adverse effects on your on your family life and and your health and and that's what we're trying to help people do i just want to know that because you already mentioned holy quran as well and you said that we should abstain from alcohol for for a whole life um if someone does this if someone follows this practice as well from abstaining of alcohol what do you think how many diseases will he be staying away from uh you know it it's hard to say i mean one thing that's become clear i suppose in the last 10 years is the the link between uh alcohol and some forms of cancer obviously uh cancers of uh you know the the food pipe any anywhere where the, the alcohol is going to go uh, you're, you're increasing your, your cancer risk. We've known for a long, long time that alcohol damages the liver because the liver is the, the organ in the body that, mm. that gets, helps mm. get rid of the alcohol. And also, I think we're becoming increasingly aware that especially if people are drinking uh, very heavily in the long term, it can actually change the shape of parts of the brain, which produces a condition, uh, a condition rather, uh, a, a bit like dementia, you know, that people lose memory, they lose um, self-control. So... On you know generally it it's a good idea to uh, to avoid alcohol. It doesn't it doesn't do us any good. Uh, obviously in in UK society drinking is is common. It's fairly normal mm-hmm. for a lot of people. So what we are saying, I think we've got to be realistic, you know, and we say well look for people who for whatever reason medical reasons reasons of their faith or personal reasons want to abstain from alcohol. That's really good for them. 
probably for the majority of the British population, what we're trying to say is, well, look, we, you know, we need to moderate it, like I said, so that it doesn't cause too many problems. It doesn't get in the way of other things, you know, mm. and doesn't doesn't stop you doing other things. That's, I think that that's that would be most people's goal, probably. You saying that I mean, speaking about the goals of most people to um, to reduce the amount of alcohol uh, during yeah. daily life. But do you think, like, because you started with uh, dry January, do you think it is impossible to have more months during the year uh, where they can stay dry? Oh no, certainly. I mean, what we found is that um, some people say, "Well, I, st- I started for January and I, uh, you know, I carried on till till April or something." I remember talking mm. to a. Uh, a prominent politician years ago when we launched Dry January and I said, oh, if you thought about doing this? And he said, well, I always um, stay dry from the 1st of January to the 1st of March. He was a, a Welsh politician. You know, he said, I stay dry till uh, St. David's Day. So that's someone who, you know, they did, did it for, what is that, uh, two months, isn't it? And, and other people will say, look, I, you know, I want, to take a, I want to take the summer off. You know, I want to take the spring off, whatever it might be. And... And some people, like I said, who do dry January and just decide, oh, do you know what? I don't think alcohol was really, it wasn't a friend to me. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I'm going to leave it behind. I'm going to, you know. And you, if you look on um, on all the social media, you know, Instagram, TikTok, things like this, you'll see people talking about how pleased they are that, that you know, they went sober. Um, and I think, yeah, for us as an organization that's trying to reach the whole population, we got to be able to support the people who want to do that and also the people who want to moderate mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. no indeed uh, i mean still i'm very uh, I'm a big fan of the dry january initiative because oh good thank you uh, i mean bringing like um, people realizing that that's a big damage uh, in alcohol and um, that's uh, because this is also mentioned in holy crown that's why i'm i'm saying that i I'm yeah yeah friend. but i just want to know that for example you know uh, as a muslim i'm i've never touched alcohol and okay. some someone who is moderating alcohol um what do you prefer more someone who just leave alcohol out for his whole life or someone who just moderated i think we i what i would say is it's not my job to tell people what to do mm. i mean we know the the advice is that i i think it's an interesting one in this country because the, all the medical advice the science is that it is probably better not to have alcohol but we also know that it's like uh, it's an important part of, oh, it is an important part of some people's social lives. It feels important to them. And we've got to be realistic. So I think, I mean, I um, I drink alcohol. I try to be a moderate drinker. Mm. That doesn't always work. Sometimes I have too much. And I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm aware of the, the risks there. Um, you know, and obviously we've just been through Christmas, which for lots of people culturally in the UK, regardless of the religious association, mm. is a is a big drinking time. And for example, I I would never, I don't think it'd be realistic for me to say, right, everyone needs to have a really moderate Christmas because I don't think a lot of people would. Uh, but I I suppose in that case we would sort of you know we'd temper our advice and we'd say, well look, okay, we know that Christmas is a big drinking time, but you know think about how you can manage it. Maybe don't start too early in the day. Uh, think about the risk that's going to cause arguments uh, in the family, you know, because it can be quite a tense time. So, so I think for us as an organization, trying to sort of be of service to the whole range of people in this country, we we really got to sort of, uh, we've got to, you know, change, we've got to adapt our advice to meet people's different needs, you know. And I mean, the other thing I would say as well, because I've, um, I've engaged with uh, 
various uh, Muslim individuals and communities, spoken to people in, in different mosques. And we know as well that within Muslim communities, alcohol problems do occur for the same reasons they occur everywhere else. And I think that's something that I've been keen to do in my, my work with, with Muslim communities is, is increase the, uh, the understanding and the support within those communities so that when someone, someone who is, is following Islam is, develops an alcohol problem, that they know that they can get support from, from their mosque. They can get support about the alcohol from people who understand about their faith as well. And I think that would be, if we could together, if we could work together to do more of that so that uh, people get support within their faith tradition to, to, to manage an alcohol, but to, to overcome an alcohol problem, you know, not just to say, well, it's haram, you shouldn't be doing it, but okay, we understand it's haram, we're going to help you, we're going to yeah. sit with you, we're going to help you to overcome the problem, you know, uh, to, to show you mercy and compassion. I think that's something I, I'm really keen to do more of. No, that's a good thing because, you know, this is what every religion, even Islam says that if you see some fault in your brother, then try to help him to get rid of it. And uh, yeah. and this is what, you know, just Islam, this is what, you know, everyone should do as well as, you know, yeah. as humankind to be, as you just said, to be mercy. Yeah. To other yeah. work, everyone. That's I, it. I know. I mean, I, I, I know from reading the, the the Holy Quran in translation. I think it starts with the statement that that God is merciful, yeah. and I think that that's a good place to start when you're when you're helping someone with their alcohol problems to be merciful. No, it indeed is. You have a lot of knowledge about Islam, I believe. I, I, well, I try to. We, as an organization, we try to engage with mm. all sort of all different communities. So um, I've. Yeah, I've read up about. Oh, I've read the Quran in English. I've read books about Hinduism and Sikhism. I'm from a Christian tradition myself. I think we, we, and as a society, I mean, I know that your movement's very keen on this. We need to understand each other's traditions. Mm. Uh, that's how we live together in harmony. And True. I think as an organization like us that needs to be serving all the different British communities of different faiths and no faiths at all, then I think it's important for us to, it's probably important for us to know a bit about the Quran and the, and all the other holy scriptures that people read in this country to, so that we can uh, we can talk to people in their own way. Indeed it is. Um, Andrew, I've, I mean, you just mentioned Holy Quran, I've got so many questions, but unfortunately we are just <laughs> okay. short of time. But I really, I uh, um, hopefully one day we can have you again because I just want yeah, to carry on that nice. conversation. That'd be nice, truly nice. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you for joining and may the peace and blessing of Allah be with you. Thank you. Uh, and you, thank you. Thank you. So you just listened uh, to Andrew Middle uh, again, who is the director of Wales at Alcohol Change UK. And you know this dry January. The reason I like it is because you make people aware that alcohol was basically the main cause for a lot of problems. And he just said it, that people have realized that alcohol wasn't a friend of me. So mm-hmm. why not giving a push, you know? Exactly. It's, it's giving it's like a, like for month a training. Like, you know, we have Ramadan. Ramadan tells us the, uh, um, the problems we have and to get rid of it. And you can see dry January in this sense as well, that you stay away from alcohol and you can see the problem it was causing you. And so you can realize and you can stri- try to stay away from that. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe even improve this and then... The next year you can say, oh, let's do two months in a year and then the exactly. year after add another month. I mean, so. they have, yeah, yeah, already mentioned that there have been people who have increased it like mm-hmm. four months as well. And uh, as you said, like when you stay away from alcohol, you have a healthy sleep as well. You, lo- you lose weight as well. Um, a lot of diseases, you will stay from, away from that as well. 
So this is something you know, uh, which I think uh, it's a good idea. It's a good initiative. Um, and um, the listeners, um, Andreas may said it as well. Uh, alcohol is of course forbidden in Islam. It's haram. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, um, we as Muslim, if we see any fault in uh, on anyone else, we try to help him and to get rid of that. But we wanted to stay. F- uh, uh, to that as well and we wanted to not just uh, discuss about alcohol but also about some other um, things which are causing troubles in our society like drugs as well and for that dear listeners we have Professor Ian Hamilton with us who um, who investigates the impact, impact uh, drug use has on individuals and populations focusing on the social health and political issues related to drug and alcohol use um, Professor Ian writes a regular column for The Independent, provides opinion pieces for the British Medical Journal, as well as publishing academic papers. Professor Ian Hamilton, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you, and uh, good morning, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. That's very kind, thank you. Um, Ian, Professor, um, Professor Ian, um, we, we, just, we are discussing that um, in Islam, for example, alcohol is... Um, totally forbidden and we are not allowed to drink alcohol at all um are there, i just want to know that um are there any um do you think that alcohol is causing social and phys- uh, problems uh, in the society well i think the damage that alcohol causes is underrated in the uk you know the the most commonly used drug as it were in the uk is alcohol and although many people perhaps drink, um, you know, relatively small amounts and it doesn't cause a problem. Uh, There is a proportion of people, we think about a third of people who drink alcohol, that it has a really serious effect on. So it has an effect not only on their health, but also the relationships they have in terms of their family, friends and their work. Um, So yes, undoubtedly alcohol does cause uh, problems within our society. And, you know, probably the easiest things to think about are the things that, people will, will think about immediately are, you know, violence and people, um, you know, over the weekend, particularly at night time when they're intoxicated, um, either, you know, getting into fights or being disinhibited and behaving in a way that they wouldn't normally. Mm. So, Professor, you're saying that uh, if you have, like, just a small portion of alcohol a day, uh, it, won't count, uh, it, won't, it won't cause too much damage, but... The World Health Organization published a statement last year stating when it comes to alcohol consumption, there is no safe amount that does not affect health. I just want to know your opinion about that. Well, well, I would agree, but you could also say that um, you know your best way of avoiding uh, a traffic accident is never to go out in a car or a bus or a, um, a lorry or whatever, a vehicle. Uh, so the best way of avoiding a, a road traffic accident is never to drive. So I think we have to be realistic. And I agree with the World Health Organization. You know, the safest amount of alcohol is not to take any. But that's not realistic. People will drink. So I think we have to be clear about uh, what the risks are, how great the risks are. Um, so from my point of view, the risks from drinking a relatively small amount of alcohol, less than 14 units a week, are, are pretty small, really. They're, they're not zero, but they're very small. But, Professor, you know, for example, I myself, I can say, and uh, Azam can say that as well, that I've never had alcohol my whole time, my whole mm-hmm. life. I mean, I think it's still possible to live a life without alcohol. Of course, of course, yeah. No, I'd, I'd agree. And, you know, if you can, um, 
that that's fantastic. Um, I just think we need to be realistic that that's not the case for everyone, you know, and because of the, I guess, the grip the alcohol industry and their products have in the UK, it's unlikely that we're, we're going to see that anytime soon. So I think we have to be realistic about the fact that people will drink and it's trying to reduce the harm and the quantity and frequency with which they drink. But just one thing, like, um, for example, my parents, right, they told mm-hmm. me, listen, this is alcohol and this is the uh, damage you can have, right? Yeah. And for, like from the, when I was a child, and this is how I kept myself away from alcohol. What if we start, like, for example, children going to kindergarten, to nursery, to school, when we start telling them the damage of alcohol, do you think we will then see a society where people will maybe, more, the popularity will maybe stay away from alcohol? Perhaps, but sometimes, um, you know, particularly for, for young men and certainly for, for some young women, yeah. Saying something that's forbidden or talking about the danger of it can actually um, have the opposite effect and mm. it can attract them to trying something because it's risky, uh, because they've been told not to do it. So it will certainly, you know, telling young children about the dangers of drugs or alcohol or smoking or whatever will work for some of them, but it won't work for all of them, unfortunately. All right. Now, um, thank you, Professor Ian Hamilton, for your time. Um, I really appreciate your thought as well. Uh, I wish you all the best for the future and hopefully one day we, again we can have you on the breakfast show. Thank you for joining. That's very kind. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So you just listened to Professor Ian Hamilton uh, who investigates the impact of drug use, which uh, what impact it have, can have on individuals and populations. And, uh, you know, um, Asim, um, alcohol, for example, uh, in Islam, it is forbidden to take alcohol. Um when you know i had a conversation with someone who converted to islam immediate and i asked him i listen i just want to know what do you feel when you have alcohol when you drink alcohol and he said like you know when you drink alcohol you kind of feel free to do what you want to do mm-hmm. but he said sometimes you also regret that because you do done some stupid things yeah. which you never wanted to do so um it can bring a lot of damage as well it brings a lot of as islam has said that uh, the damage is huge as well um And uh, that's why, you know, um, I, I think that if the parents start teaching the children, you know, f- explaining them what impact alcohol, not only alcohol, but other things ha- can have on the body, they will stay away from that. Exactly, yeah. And all the things which I mentioned in the Holy Quran, if we, like drug, using drugs is forbidden as mm-hmm. well. If they're t- telling us that. As they're already telling us that, uh, you know, drugs is really bad for your health and we can start uh, using the same initiative for alcohol as well. Absolutely. Indeed it is. Um, dear listeners, um, we have uh, the next caller online as well, which is Miss Alice Wiseman, who is the Vice President of the Association of Directors of Public Health and Policy Lead for Addiction. Alice is also the Director of Public Health for Gateshead. Miss Alice, um, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Miss Alice, uh, th- the question I have for you is that um, are there any prominent concerns regarding current alcohol advertisements and uh, marketing promotions? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, the alcohol industry has really wallpapered our world with their version of alcohol. You know, we live in an environment that promotes alcohol at every turn. It's on every street corner, in every TV ad break. It's carefully placed in supermarkets to encourage 
people to consume. And obviously, you know, with, with social media, it's now reaching many people in ways that we've not seen before. Um, you know, this is a real concern for, for me and certainly my colleagues in public health, because what we see is as we see um, availability and promotions increasing, we also see consumption increasing. And I think often the industry like us to think that it's about people making individual choices. But actually, we know that where there's an environment that encourages this type of use, people are less likely to be able to make those choices independently of the influence in the, their environment. Uh, so we're really keen on ensuring that we have action that tackles some of this you know, un- unnecessary pressure from marketing and, and availability. Um, Miss um, Ellis, you know, sometimes young children, you, you, you were talking about pressure as well. Um, you, t- you were talking about people sometimes are influenced, especially our young, the younger generations. Let's see, youngsters, they are sometimes influenced as well. Or, they, or let's say they are, don't know the damage of alcohol. I just want to know uh, what current level of alcohol consumption in society, especially by the youngsters. Yeah, I mean, so actually, you know, we're really concerned about alcohol consumption across the board, you know, so it increased right up until mid-2000s and it's levelled off since then. And interestingly, there's been a particular reduction amongst young people. But even when you take that into account, you know, people on average are still consuming around 18 units per week, which is significantly above the chief medical officer guidelines. Um, you know, and actually, you know, what we do, what we do see is whilst young people aged 16 to 24 are less likely to drink than any other age, and we're actually worried more about the kind of middle age drinking. Um, they when they do drink, they consume more on their heaviest days drinking. Mm. So whilst they might not drink regularly, when they do drink, they drink too much, and we know that that causes un, untold harm. Um, you know, in terms of you know, we know that alcohol kills around 70 people a day. We know that there are one million alcohol-related hospital admissions every year. There are 200 medical conditions, including seven types of cancer, that are caused by alcohol. And, and really critically as well, there are 17 million working days lost in the UK every year due to alcohol-related sickness. You know, so it's, it's a real Im- impact for all of our society. And Ellis, um just one last question um in regard you you just were telling us the numbers which are which are horrific to be honest um yes. but um do you think is it possible that if we start uh, telling the youngsters from or the children from from the, uh, from the young age that listen alcohol drugs gambling etc is very harmful and if you stay away from that it's very good for you if they if we start telling them from the beginning do you think they will abstain from that the whole so, so the 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 evidence shows that actually education alone is not enough mm-hmm. and actually young people are much more likely to be shaped by the environment that they live in you know so whilst schools will be you know talking to young people around alcohol it's much more important that we try to protect children by reducing the availability of advertising reducing the promotion so that they're not exposed to it interestingly when i was preparing for this interview I, w- I was looking at some of the, the advice that's given, you know, in terms of um, the, the work that's in, in the Quran. Quran mm. And I, I, I was reading something with great interest that it says it is, in them it is a great sin and some profit for men, but the sin is greater than the profit. Mm. And that's exactly the way that alcohol is, you know, because if you look at the fact that it might bring some money in for our economy, and that's often the argument you hear from the industry, Actually, it costs us between 27 and 52 billion to pick up the pieces. 
You know, so I think it's really important that we look at the environment that our children and young people are growing up in, because at the minute they are far too exposed to, to alcohol messaging and it's far too normal in our society, broadly in our society, of course, um, you know, than, than, than it needs to be. And I think if we look at what we've done with tobacco, actually mm. over the last few decades, we've reduced that and people are not choosing to smoke at the same level that they were smoking previously. So actually let's protect people and allow them to make their own decisions, you know, with that protection, like you say, with that knowledge around the harm that it causes. Mm. You know, people often think it's only about addiction. It's absolutely not. No level of drinking is safe, you know, and I'm, that might not be something that some people want to hear, but that is the truth. And we know, for example, one in 10 breast cancers in women is caused by alcohol use. So, you know, this is not something that we can, you know, continue to sit back and, and, mm. and not address. And that's what we're doing as directors of public health is, you know, kind of talking to government and trying to influence them around some of the regulatory things that we think we know would protect communities and particularly, like you say, young people. Ms. Ellis, I agree what you just said totally, that we should literally just stray away from that. We can, I mean, so many diseases we can just beat with, uh, but just by ref- uh, staying away from uh, from alcohol. Um, and uh, Ms. Alice, uh, interesting what you just said, and truly, um, I really wanted that conversation to go on longer, but unfortunately, we are short of time. But no, that's fine. I'm just hoping one day we can have you again on a breakfast show. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a real privilege. No, uh, um, I'm very glad to have you with us. Um, and of course, in the end, I just want to say Asalaamu Alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Do you listen? You just listened to Ms. Alice Weisman, uh, who's the vice president of the Association of Directors of Public Health and Policy Lead for Addiction. And Asim, you know, the message she gave in the end, it's very, you know, you should listen to that message again. I mean, she, she quoted the Holy Quran. She said, she quoted the verse where it said that um, alcohol is harmful. Yes, there are some um, benefits, but the harm is much bigger, uh, damaging, much more damaging than um, uh, the benefit. Uh, she quoted uh, the the She quoted basically the verse twenty two hundred twenty two from chapter two. It says, "They ask thee concerning wine and the game of hazard. Say in both there is great sin and also some advantages for man, but their sin is greater and their advantage. Uh, but their sin is greater than their advantage." And this is what we uh, basically our parents have focused on. That listen, this is something you should stay away from. That and she didn't also said that. Exactly. Yeah, that uh, even one sip can is very harmful as well. And we were talking about alcohol. And listen, everyone just mentioned that there are so many diseases which are come with alcohol as well. And and she just mentioned the numbers. You know that one mil- million people a year are hospitalized because of alcohol. And this is horrific. And of course, we can reduce the number as well, dear listeners, while listening to the teachings of the Quran. And why not trying? Instead, of like we have dry January, okay, start on January and try to increase the month, increase the uh, the, the num- amount of the month until you, you are able to refrain from alcohol for your whole life and just see what impact that can have on your life as well. Because I have never had alcohol in my life and I'm happy with that. Asim never had alcohol in his life. Asim, you're happy as well. Very happy, yeah. So, and uh, I, can, I know a lot of people who never had alcohol in their life and they're still also very happy. So why not trying that? To live a life without alcohol, dear listeners. We just wrap it up uh, uh, with uh, uh, one thing um, of the Holy Prophet upon him uh, about this matter, and then we will go straight to the second, uh, third segment.
Exactly. So uh, as you mentioned the Holy Quran already, and then if you look at the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that if a large amount of anything causes intoxication, even a small amount of it is forbidden. Uh, so, uh, you know, you can clearly see that um, uh, any small amount of intoxication, is, it is forbidden. So, dear listeners, uh, you just listen to Asim, and now we go for a short break. And after that short break, we're back with our third segment. Our jihad is not a jihad of swords, guns, or bombs. Our jihad is not a jihad of cruelty, brutality, and injustice. Rather, our jihad is of love, mercy, and compassion. Our jihad is of tolerance, justice, and human sympathy. Our jihad is to fulfill the rights of God Almighty and of His creation. My second question is, why are we allowed to drink any alcohol? Alcohol, when you see, already you have uh, seen so many complaints against drunken driving, haven't you? Yes. And you must have been aware also of uh, alcohol men being mentioned frequently in connection with the increase in crime. So this is something which is bad because under alcoholic influence, we either lose control of, over our actions or we are enfeebled in our mental capabilities to judge things in the right perspective. So we make, we're more likely to make errors of judgment. Like it is demonstrated during our driving of cars under alcoholic influences. Why do accidents take place? Because our uh, judgment is impaired under alcoholic influence. So when you can't drive a car, how can you be safe in dealing with other human affairs? That is why many an alcoholic person has been reported to smash the head of his own child against the stone wall, becoming mad at something. You know, he couldn't control his rage. Similarly, most of the cruelties committed against uh, wives, women here, uh, by their husbands, are reported to be under the influence of wine or alcohol, whatever you call it. So, because it is, it has more bad than good about it, so the Holy Quran says that is why it has been forbidden. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Allah, 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 
أشهد أن محمدا listening to the voice of islam radio in the name of allah the most gracious ever merciful dear listeners assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may the peace and blessings of allah be with you welcome back to breakfast show on the voice of islam radio and awesome you know the, the third segment it it is i'm i'm actually was, was looking for, for this third segment because this third segment is is uh, we took it uh, for let's say we dedicated this third uh, segment to someone who is a member of this community and who is also not just a member but also has won the nobel prize in physics absolutely so the gist is that too many times we heard the sad story of those gifted children who end up as either wasted potential or bur- burnt out adults living average lives in their own eyes and compared to the Uh, continual high standards so the segment will focus on uh, and discuss how to carefully nurture future generations and preserve their thrill for lives and education this show is inspired by dr abdul salam a man who was thoroughly supported throughout his childhood by those dear to him and whose drive and passion for learning made him a man whose name is now stamped in history in history in history indeed um but you know um uh, wasted potential um sometimes you see that children are pushed so high or t- have been told that you are meant to be to do these 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 kind of things and i think that sometimes the pressure is m- much higher as well and uh, they just can't handle the pressure i believe and uh, you know that's why we did uh, we have inspired by dr abdul salam because he was someone also you know he had pressure by himself as well but you know the amazing thing about him asim is that one day he was reading the prachapta najm which means stars and from that on he decided what he wanted to become he wanted to become a physician he wanted to go on science he wants to see wants to learn from that and the first teacher he had was the holy quran itself and dear listeners we have a short audio clip to pl- uh, play it is about professor abdul salam um enjoy this clip and after that we will back Sheldon L. Glashow and Steven Weinberg of the United States and Abdus Salam of Pakistan for their contributions to the theory of unified weak and electromagnetic interaction between elementary particles. 1979, the year the first Muslim was awarded the Nobel Prize for the Sciences. Dr. Abdus Salam was a Nobel laureate in the field of physics. Professor Abdus Salam fought hard to bring science and technology to his home nation of Pakistan. serving as the first scientific advisor to the president he was the founder and the first director of the space and upper atmosphere research commission Sheldon L Sheldon L Glashow and Steven Weinberg of the United States and Abdus Salam Dear listeners uh, this was a short clip i just wanted to show you about um Dr Abdus Salam but now well, what we're going to do is awesome we will ha- we have our f- uh, next guest on hold um and uh, we want to discuss with her about this segment uh, so without uh, just wasting time um, i just want to welcome mrs julie taplin uh, who is the ceo of potential plus uk and is a member of the advisory board of the echo special interest group of empowering families mrs julie taplin 
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be with you and welcome to the breakfast show. Hello and welcome. Good morning. Um, this is Julie Chaplin. Chaplin, I'm actually very delighted to have you with us because throughout, like, you know, um, I've seen sometimes children who, let's say, who have special gifts or who are very intelligent or who have some good qualities. They have been pushed into such a pressure that sometimes they just couldn't go with the pressure and they went to, um, let's say, to depression. How can you just um, model that, that if you see someone with these kinds of qualities, you just don't push him, but also try to help him to maintain these good qualities? Um, That's a really good question, especially one, you know, for parents to try and and think about. Um, I mean, we as a charity um, try and help Young, young people, the children and the parents uh, and actually also teachers to understand that um, it's not just about the academic success of a child or a young person but also about their welfare and their social and emotional well-being. So it really is about giving them opportunities yes to be challenged and stretched in their areas of strength, whatever that might be be that um, academic such as math or history, but also in the arts. Um, and also, you know, some young people have strengths in things like leadership um, or music. Um, but at the same time, it's about keeping an eye on their welfare. And we try and take a holistic kind of a whole child approach. And it's about making sure that children develop um, strengths in areas like teamwork, self-understanding, um, self-esteem so that when they go out into the, the wider world they have the resilience to be able to cope with things that, that come up um, and things, some things that help are taking children outside their comfort zones so if a child for example is very good at maths or academics in, in some other way we often as parents and I speak as a parent myself we often as parents think oh we need to provide lots more opportunities in in maths, for example. And yes, on the one hand, but we do have to balance that with making sure that they go out into the wide world, having experienced, um, I guess, failing in a safe environment. Things like board games are really good, you know, for developing strategy, for learning how to fail, for thinking about, well, I didn't get it right that time, what could I do differently? So there are things that we can do to try and, alleviate that kind of stress that seems to be on a lot of young people at present, especially after the COVID um, uh, you know, crisis. Thank you very much. So, Mrs. Julie, uh, how can you tell if a child with learning difficulties is also gifted? That's, a, again, a really interesting one because um, one tends to mask the other. So what we would say, for example, to, to teachers, um, and it's also something that parents can think about, as well, uh, is that, you know, we, we look at various things. And certainly for, 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 for teachers, we think about um, looking at what are the academic difficulties that a child might have, as well as what might be any emotional issues. So that could be low self-esteem. Um, but we also need to make sure that we're looking at their strengths as well. So by that, an example would be, a child with dyslexia, we, we, we see this quite often where a child has a learning difficulty, um, such as, as an example, dyslexia, but um, 
they are also bright enough to have developed ways of coping with that. So their general achievement, their academics, it, it seems kind of average. They're doing fine. There doesn't seem to be any huge problems. But if their academic difficulties were identified and supported and um, the level and challenge of academics then was actually provided for them, they would start to fly. It's difficult because one does tend to mask the other. So it is about looking at emotional issues, any behavioural issues, intellectual strengths, academic difficulties. And we have things like checklists for school that help them to, to, to do this. So it isn't easy, but it's about being aware that one can mask the other. Amazing. Um uh, Mrs. Julie Tablet. I mean, what you just said is very interesting, uh, and uh, I think something you know we should understand as well, and we should follow as well. Um, Mrs. Julie, unfortunately, we are short of time, but I really enjoyed the conversation and really wanted to carry on that as well. Um, but hopefully, uh, uh, one day we can have you again in a breakfast show. Thank you for joining. I'd be very well. I'd be very happy to do that. Good luck with the rest of your show. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Um, dear listeners, you just listened to Mrs. Julie Taplin, who's the CEO of Potential Plus UK and is a member of the advisory board of this ECA Special Interest Group for Empowering Families. And coming now, now to our next uh, guest, who is who's going to be the last guest of our show, is Mr. Jason Buckley, <coughs> who runs Gift Courses, an organization serving gifted children that has existed since 1917 and is also a leading authority on philosophy for children. He was a gifted child himself who got bored at school and thought himself at A-level. Amazing. Now, nowadays, he trains teachers, hosts online courses and residentials for children and teens and writes materials for teachers and parents to use. Jason Buckley, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessing of Allah be with you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. I like it. Here, my good friend Julie uh, just caught the end of her. It's a very small world looking after uh, <laughs> gifted children. So I, I know Julie well and I used to be a trustee of her organisation, so yeah. Wow, amazing! This is amazing. Now, um, uh, if I knew that you both were friends, I would call you in the same time. Uh, uh-huh. But next time, maybe uh, when we have uh, yeah. the same show, uh, we can Indeed. call you both in the same time. It would be amazing to listen to both of you, uh, especially to you now, Justin Buckley. You are a gifted child as well. Uh, what can I mean? How can you define that? How what is a gifted child? So I think one of the things is that uh, a lot of people have the sort of stereotype of gifted children as kind of, I don't know, little geeky individuals who are very different to normal children, just the sort of like a a miniature professor type adult. That's the sort of child genius type stereotype. But gifted children are, there's as much variety within gifted children as there is within children generally. So for me, the defining thing is a child who does something remarkable, who is, who is, years beyond what you'd expect from a child of that age in some way the sort of child where you think well hang on a minute or was 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 that all your own work or is that something you've heard you might be surprised that a child of that age is able to do or to say what you've just heard from so something unexpected for a child of that age but beyond that there are so many different flavors it could be a child who's brilliant at lots and lots of different things it could be they've got one thing that they're fantastic at and then something else that they're absolutely terrible at, you know. So it's a very, very diverse sort of thing. But I think generally 
you get a sort of intuition there's something special about this child. If you get that gut instinct that there's something remarkable about this child, go with that gut instinct and see what you can do to bring out the gifts that they've got. And like um, you himself, you are like, I, I just read it out, you got bored at school and you uh, taught yeah. yourself A-level. Um, you, you you never wasted your potential. Um, now, what advice can you give someone to someone that see who is, is a gifted child? That how can he himself help himself to improve more? Right. So, so in terms of advice to children, I would say the first thing, the biggest message I would want to get across to to anybody who's a gifted child who's perhaps bored at school is it does get better. So, the hardest time to be a gifted child, I think, is probably the earliest years of childhood, because if you can already read and you're being taught to read, especially being taught phonics, it's torture. It is so, so crushingly boring. But as you get older, it gets easier to find opportunities to work with older children. Uh, the work gets more interesting. There are more opportunities for extending and stretching yourself. So, so uh, and then even when you get into university, your second degree will be more interesting than your first degree and things like that. So it does get better. Um, you get more opportunities to connect, to find your tribe and spend more time with people who are on your own wavelength. So don't despair. Don't think it's always going to be like it is because the older you are, the more chances you get to find the intellectual opportunities and the people that allow you to be your best self so you don't feel you're having to kind of dumb yourself down or hide who you really are as much as you do perhaps when you're a younger child. Uh, Mr. Jason, uh, what are some of the misconceptions um, people have about gifted children? Right. So I think um, one of the biggest ones, and, and this, this is something that I'm ashamed to say I get a lot from teaching colleagues, um, is an assumption that, oh, gifted children is just another kind of privilege it's a sort of middle class thing there are mm -hmm. pushy parents so very often parents have the experience of being sort of gaslit by schools they'll be saying my child already knows this they're years ahead they're bored because this is too easy for them and they they the schools don't necessarily take them seriously they they kind of imagine oh it's just that every parent thinks their child is wonderful and things like that Uh, one of the most gifted children I've ever met, possibly the cleverest person I've ever met, was from a family where you know the, the, the father was involved in sort of criminality. The mother had um, sufficient mental health problems that she was in an institution for most of her life. And they were absolutely brilliant. They could take a philosophical problem and just sort of fillet it like a fish, you know. Um, so giftedness can occur anywhere in the population it's ju not just a pushy middle class thing so that's the biggest misconception i think um yeah interesting so uh, important question is why is it important to nurture gifted children and how can parents especially support right. a gifted child so, so in terms of why it's important i think one thing is is the benefits to society um you know so there's a political aspect to this that that um it is the The, the children who are going to grow up to be the most gifted adults who will often have, I mean, other people can get there by hard work, but if you, they're, they're the children who are most likely to innovate, to be leaders in their field if they get the right conditions. There's also caring for that individual. 
that you, you wouldn't leave a child with special needs who was three or four years behind the rest of their class to just do the same work because that would be cruel. You'd know that they would need extra support. And yet we often do that with children who are three or four years ahead. So it doesn't respect the individual. And uh, lastly, I mean, for your viewers in particular, coming from a, if, for those coming at this from a religious point of view, um, you know, the, the very word gifted, you know, implies someone who is a giver. So if you want to kind of, if, if you have a religious view of the world, if you want to cherish the gifts that have come from God, um, then, you know, this is, this, this is part of that. It's part of respecting creation, I suppose, and looking after an aspect of, of creation. Um, in terms of what parents can do, the first thing is fight your child's corner, advocate for them, turn up at the school, push the school to give them work that is interesting. Because a lot of kids, even though they're bored, they won't necessarily tell their teachers they're bored. So sometimes the school will say they're absolutely fine they're no trouble at all because they're not kicking off at school. They're just bored and dying inside. So support them at school, advocate for them, give them opportunities to pursue their interests. But most importantly, biggest message, single message for parents, find potential friendship groups for them. So find places where they're more likely to meet other children who are on the same length same wavelength like maybe it's a chess club maybe there's a science club a coding club maybe there's a drama group expose them to different groups of people where they're that bit more likely to find kids who are intellectually curious um, switched on engaged in their learning excited to find out about more ideas so those are the three things fight their corner at school support their interests and most importantly find them new places where they've got a better chance of finding friends that they can really connect with. Interesting indeed. Um, that, I just want, you know, because of short of time, I had a lot of questions to ask you as mm-hmm. well, um, yeah. um, Jason, but um, do you think that, um, you know, um, sometimes uh, you just said that you, uh, this misconception that people often have, which is totally wrong, of course, um, but do you think that, um I mean, uh, I just want to know: Is it like some uh, so in in in, a, um, in your genes that because maybe your father was gifted, that your child may be gifted as well, or is it just so? Th- I mean, this is an endless debate in gifted education. Um, uh, I have come across children who are like bolts from the blue, and, and and in my case, you know, there's no particular history. I mean, I was the first child in my family to go to university. Um, my mum didn't really know what to do with me. Um, you know, she hadn't got experience of children like that. So it's very difficult to disentangle. And I think there are probably some children who present as gifted because of some genetic inheritance and so on, and a quirk of their genetics um, and, and their inheritance. And there may be others who've just been very, very well raised. They've had lots of opportunities um, and they've grabbed those opportunities, and that's what's pushed them on to being exceptional. But it's very much a live debate in the field of giftedness, um, and, and no one's really got a clear and definitive answer to it. I think when you get to children who are the sort of one in a hundred thousand, that the well are called the exceptionally gifted children, it feels like there must be some sort of genetic at- uh, aspect to it because they're so different. They're as different to a regular gifted child as if you like a regular gifted child is from an average child. So you get, you know, levels and levels of this. And at the most exceptional end, 
it seems there has to be some sort of neurological, genetic, biological explanation for why that child is is so exceptional. Indeed, uh, it is. I mean, um, Jason, uh, as I said, because of the short of our time, because we mm-hmm. are re- reaching the sure. hour, uh, we have to finish the show. There are many questions I just wanted to know as well. But as I said, hopefully one day we can have you uh, with us uh, again, uh, alongside with uh, your friend uh, Mrs. Julie Taplin. Lovely. And, yeah. And, and can I just say for anybody who's listening to this yes. and thinking, that's my child, that's my child, um, we do run online courses. If you go to p4he.org, then we run sort of debating and philosophy and other courses. And if there's anybody listening who thinks, that's my child, but I can't afford it, just get in touch with us. Yeah, We never want anybody to miss out on these opportunities. There are charities that support us, or I'd rather just give someone a space for free than have someone miss out. So p4he.org, get in touch with us if you feel your child needs something extra that they're not getting from school, and don't worry about getting in touch if you feel money is an issue because we want everybody to have access to the opportunities that they should enjoy. Indeed. Thank you uh, again. And uh, as I said, hopefully one time we can have you again. And all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. Dear listeners, we uh, just have to end the show now. We have reached the hour. I just want to say thank you to our producer, Dania, Sabia and Tayeba, and to our uh, researchers, Afreen, Barida, Vaki and Atiyatu Salam. And of course to you, Asim as well. And to our guests who joined today as well. Dear listeners, Uh, uh, th- uh, thank you to you for listening to the show and of course we'll take him as well if you want to learn more about Islam stay tuned with the Voice of Islam radio or you can go on our socials at Voice of Islam UK may the peace and blessings of Allah be with you all and have a great day ahead